Let me begin with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your grace, Lord, your power on display so clearly in creation. Lord, we thank you for the rain, um, just that even from your sovereign hand, you have provided that, um, or just the beauty of your creation, even just driving in, seeing the mountains so clearly. Um, God, thank you for who you are, the wonder of your majesty and grace. I pray this morning as we look to Pilgrim's Progress, uh, later as we gather as a church to worship and to hear from your word, that you would even now move in our hearts, uh, that we would receive um, the truths that are contained in your scriptures, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. pray that you would bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Yeah, grab your seat. <clears throat> Come on in. Jumping back into Pilgrim's Progress, as always, kind of a quick recap. Where are we in the story? Um, we see, um, you know, if you go back, actually, wait a minute. I noticed my, note, my notes, the first couple of points, I was like, this is, this is last week I had up here, so now we're right. Um, I was like, I was recapping two weeks ago, just about to. Yeah, uh, we come up here, uh, he comes to Mount Sinai. Um, there's a storm back there in that room. Um, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the law of God. I'm actually going to push this down and try to hopefully help us. This room is not great for equipping. I'm just for anything. It's just like weeping, gnashing of teeth. Well, now it's over here. Storm, you know, people going into meetings back here, like bathroom. It's just like, hey, it's okay. It is what it is. Um, it's, it's all good. Uh, but we saw here Bunyan, he's seeking to um, demonstrate, he's drawing together biblical passages, imagery, dealing with, uh, you know, seeking justification by works, the terror of that. Um, it's just not the biblical way. Um, he talks about the three things that we must detest in worldly wise men's doctrine, uh, this doctrine of seeking justification uh, by works. It says doctrines we must utterly hate. One, he turns you out of the way. Number two, his zealous effort to portray the cross as abhorrent to you. Um, you must, you know, he, justification by works will say the cross is not important. It's actually not right. Um, that is wrong. Number three, we spent some time here. His directing of your feet toward the way which leads to the administration of death. He says here, you cannot be justified by works of the law. It makes very clear that this whole section um, is talking about seeking justification by works. And a lot of imagery drawn from Galatians chapter four, uh, Galatians 3 and chapter 4. Uh, very helpful section. Um, he talks about how, uh, well, evangelist comes to the rescue. He's not left there, right? He's not left under the terror of the mountain. Um, evangelist comes and points him back to the path. He doesn't leave them there in his despair. Uh, he says, your sin is very great, but essentially the, the grace of God is greater than your sin. So we ended last week thinking through how should we as Christians relate to, think about, use uh, the Mosaic Covenant, using the law of God. I just want to add, maybe clarify uh, just from what we were talking about, that doesn't mean we throw out God's commandments. Okay? The fact that we are under, we're not under law, but we're under grace, as uh, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 6. It doesn't mean, hey, we just you know, throw out the law. It's, it's no good. I mean, I was just reading this last week, 1 John 2, 3. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So it, it's not like the law is useless. You know, do we throw out the law? No, you know, it's, we clearly do not do that. Very clearly, we need to keep God's commands, and we need to know what God has said. The emphasis we were talking about is that uh, the source of power or the strength to live out those commandments does not come from the law. 
the, the source of strength, power that we have comes from the grace of God um, to live those things out. And that's continually where, generally speaking, with Christians, we need to point people. We know that what we're doing is wrong. Um, we don't need to go to the law for the power to remedy that. We actually need to go to grace. So that was just a quick recap of last week, just a note I wanted to say. Chapter 7, chapter 7, Christian finally arrives at the wicked gate, okay? That is where we are uh, in the book. Christian arrives at the wicked gate. Christian comes to Christ. He's justified by faith, signified by walking through the gate. Uh, That's what we're going to talk about this morning, hopefully briefly. Um, I was hoping to talk about this last week and then get to the house of interpreter. Um, So that's the plan, get all the way through the house of interpreter this morning. But he knocks at the door. Goodwill answers. Who is that? We'll get to him in a minute. He asks, who is there? Who, you know, who are you? Where are you from? What is your purpose in knocking? Christian replies, here is a poor, burdened sinner who comes from the city of destruction. But more importantly, I'm going to the celestial city, Mount Zion, so that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. Therefore, sir, since I've been informed that the way to my destination is through this gate, I would like to know if you are willing to let me enter. Goodwill replies, I am willing with all my heart. And at that, he immediately opened the gate. Now, I want you to notice here, and something, a question to consider as a group this morning. Notice Christian's purpose clause, if you will, as to why he comes to the wicked gate. Notice what he says. So that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. And I wanted to throw this out here. What do you guys think? Is it wrong, I think this is the first question there on your notes, is it wrong to be motivated to come to Christ out of a fear of hell? And maybe you know just from the rest of the story uh, what Bunyan thinks about that and what I think the biblical answer is. Would you guys say no? Yeah, someone's going to say something? I think it depends on whether you truly come to Christ yeah. or whether you just plant. Yeah. yeah, I think a simple way um, to word it is that what drives us to Christ is not what saves. What saves us is Christ. Um, the Lord uses a variety of things to bring us to himself. Um, I mean, you can just think of this, people dealing with cancer, right? And they struggle with that, and it's in that moment they realize, wow, I need to go to Christ, right? Um, fear of hell, uh, judgment, for sure. I mean, we even heard that in the testimonies last week, right? Where um, I thought it was really sweet, right? We're hadn't, you know, we were preaching through Matthew, or our church was going through Matthew, and then we got to Revelation. And I was scared to death or whatever he said or something like that. And I mean, it's just sweet. Um, I mean, I think that's very common uh, in the Christian life that we realize our sin deserves judgment and Christ offers salvation from that judgment. I mean, I would say preaching hell is just one of the divinely ordained means to bring us to Christ. Uh, So by all means, um, preachers should continue to preach about hell. Uh, we should call people to turn from the wrath to come and then point people to Christ. So don't shrink uh, away from that. There's a really good, if you want to think more about it, a good uh, Ask Pastor John, Pastor John Piper, um, little podcast on this. So I thought it was good that I listened to. So there's that first question there. Now, two questions you might be thinking at this point in your head. Number one, who is goodwill? And number two, is Christian really saved at this point? when he comes through the wicked gate? Is he, you know, if we're talking about the, the, the point in time of justification um, that we're trying to find, is this here? And I think to answer both of those questions, part two is actually really helpful. Uh, there's some illustrations in part one I'll, I'll talk about, and I've already talked about, um, but some points in part two that are pretty helpful. In part two, when Christiana and her boys um, come to the wicked gate, um, well, actually, 
they, come to the, they go through the wicket gate, and it's a longer scene. When they come to the cross, it's actually very quick, right? So if you think that, you know, the cross is like, you know, the moment of salvation, you know, this is the pinnacle point, you would think it'd get more space in Pilgrim's Progress. and actually doesn't get a ton of space. Um, it's very interesting with Christiana, when they come to the cross, they actually go back to a lengthy discussion about the wicket gate. And she asks specifically the character, their great heart, and she says, hey, what happened there at the wicket gate? And the, the Bunyan's notes there are really interesting. In part two, he says, a comment upon what was said at the gate or a discourse of our being justified by Christ. So he's like, they're about to talk about what happened at the wicked gate, and he's saying this is talking about justification, okay? So you're like, oh, okay, he's talking about justification. That's what happened at the wicked gate. I'm, there's not really a mystery there. Gate equals justification. Here's what Greatheart says to Christiana, and this answers kind of a both, our, both our questions. Is he saved there, and who is Greatheart? So then to speak to the question more at large, the pardon that you and Mercy, one of their uh, traveling companions, and the boys have attained was obtained by another. To wit, he's saying namely, specifically, this person, who's the one who obtained this? By him that let you in at the gate. And he hath obtained it in this double way. He has performed righteousness to cover you and spilt blood to wash you. And notice again that active and passive obedience of Christ that he's talking about there. Christ lived for us, right? He's performed righteousness and spilt blood. His passive obedience, he died uh, for your sins. And he's saying, who's the one who did that? The one that lets them in at the gate. Who's the one who let them in at the gate? It's the same person in part one. Goodwill. Okay. So I think very clearly, uh, it seems to be that goodwill uh, is a representation of Christ. Um, one who has goodwill towards men. I think he's drawing on uh, Luke 2 there. So it seems that in one extent, you know, Bunny is kind of mixing metaphors that, you know, the gate stands for Christ and also goodwill stands for Christ. But one, it's an allegory, so he can do what he wants, right? It works. Um, and also, two, I mean, it is biblical, right? Christ is a person, and he also refers to himself as the door. Um, so I, I don't think he's doing anything really crazy there. Yes, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a different thing because Christ is the one knocking at the door in Revelation, correct? Yes? Yeah. Well, no, here, who's, who's knocking on the door? Christian. Christian's knocking at the door. So I, I don't think, I mean, for one, Bunyan doesn't footnote. Yeah, it's okay. No, it's, yeah, yeah, John 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to talk about that. Come on. Yeah, but yeah, so, so no, I, I think those are, t- those are two different things. Yeah, yeah, but good question. Yeah, good, good. Okay, so a couple other reasons. I gave you a few a couple weeks ago why um, I think Christian is saved here at the Wicked Gate. Um, just a couple more here. If goodwill represents Christ, which I think he does, uh, and goodwill opens the door, and as we're going to see, he pulls him through, uh, I think the text is making it pretty clear um, that this is where Christian uh, is saved. Salvation has just taken place. Um, when he comes to the cross, something else is being described there, and we'll talk about that. Um, and then, yeah, to, to Josh's point, this is pretty interesting. Later on in the book... We're introduced to characters like uh, formalist, hypocrisy, uh, another uh, ignorance. 
And when he talks to them, when Christian comes and talks to them, he doesn't ask, hey, did you come by way of the cross? Okay? Which we would think, if that's the moment of salvation, he's trying to see if these people are saved, that's what he would talk about, right? Like, I mean, that's what we say when we're talking to people. It's like, have you come to Christ? Okay? That's basically the question he's asking. He doesn't say, did you come by way of the cross? He asks them, did you come by way of the wicked gate? That's the main thing he is referring to. Um, and yeah, they are described, we'll see if you guys keep reading ahead, those guys as climbing over the wall, okay? Um, you know, so he's trying to make the point there that the wicked gate is the you know, defining moment of salvation, Christian experience, if you want to talk about that. So that's another reason. This is a bonus point, this last one here. This is, if you're like, Caleb's a nerd, this is going to be a nerd moment, okay? Um, every year I try to read a big, dead Puritan, okay? Um, I just started doing that. It's been really edifying. Last year I read um, a little bit more, but one of the last ones I read was uh, Owen's work on temptation, sin, Psalm 113, uh, 130, Exposition of Psalm 130. By the time he's, you know, it's like 600 pages. No, it's like 400 pages on Psalm 130. It's like by the time he gets to the end, he's not even talking about Psalm 130 anymore. I mean, he's just totally talking about something else, but it's really good. It's good stuff. But at the end there, I was getting ready to talk about Pilgrim's Progress or planning on it. And I came upon this line in Owen, and I was like, oh, what? Owen said this, talking about salvation. Just notice, Christ is the door. Do not think to climb up over the wall, enter by him, or you will be kept out. It's very interesting. Owen published this in 1668. Pilgrim's Progress came out in 1678, 10 years later. Bunyan and Owen were friends. So there's a probability, I mean, this is just like total, like, maybe. I have no way of proving this at all. But it's like, maybe they were talking about it, and they've kind of, you know, interchanged these ideas of, you know, door and salvation in Christ. Because it's the same imagery, the exact same thing. And so I was like, again, I can't prove that. But they're both saying the same thing. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah? There was a comment in one of the books that I was reading that it was probably through Owen's publishers that Bunyan's book got published. Yeah, we talked about that in week one. Yeah, yeah. So he's, pu- were you going to say something? I was just going to say, well, and, and from just a collaborative standpoint, you have to know that Owen was okay with it because right. he's the one who said, I read your book, please go get it published. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's just like, again, it's like, this is amazing. This is cool. But anyways, it's just a neat side point. Okay, back to Pilgrim's Progress. So Goodwill, he's willing with all his heart to let Christian enter. This is page 32, I think. Yep. Now, as Christian was stepping through the gate, he was quite surprised when suddenly goodwill pulled him through. And seeking an explanation for this forceful manner, Christian was told, just a little distance outside this gate, a strong castle has been built, and its captain is named Beelzebub. From there, both he and his army shoot arrows at those who seek entrance at the gate, endeavoring to slay pilgrims before they pass through. Then Christian said, I rejoice and tremble. What else is going on here? Total side note. Have, has anyone seen the Pilgrim's Progress movie that just came out a couple years ago? It's like a cartoon with the Gettys. Okay, I'm not trying to bash on anyone. I, I'm not trying to ruin anyone, but I've just, I got like 30 minutes and I was like, I cannot watch this. Um, this scene here is so weird. It's like he's traveling along and then like a bunch of, like I think the animation is just horrible too. Like all these like demons start like chasing him and flying after him. And I'm just like, what in the world? And then Goodwill does kung fu and like beats them up. And I was just like, <laughs> what in the world is this? Like, I, I am not watching this. Um, but it's true. I, I, I think it goes back to the fact that like this book is so biblically rich that 
if you were to put everything that he's biblically trying to convey, I mean, it's hard to put all the Bible verses in there. You know what I mean? It's just not meant to be a movie like that. So I would not recommend it. Anyways, what all is going on here? Um, with goodwill pulling Christian through the door, I do think here that Bunyan is seeking to describe the, the sovereign, effectual initiative that God takes in salvation, okay? That he is the one who pulls sinners through. He calls them to himself. He ultimately gets all the credit and glory for salvation. That's not been a major motif in the book so far, and I do think that's what he's probably trying to illustrate here. But then Goodwill explains why he does this. Beelzebub, or Satan and his demons, um, they're the ones who are seen outside. They're shooting arrows. He's the god of this world. You guys know this. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers, as 2 Corinthians 4 says. He's the one who shoots at his flaming darts, Ephesians 6. But he's still under the sovereign control of God, right? I think it was Luther who said, like, Satan might be the devil, but he's the God's devil or something like that. And it's a good way to put it. Um, oftentimes in just cultural Christianity, the world can kind of see, you know, God on one side and Satan on the other, and it's just this eternal battle and they're equal powers, and it's just not biblical at all. Um, that Satan is a created being and he does... Um, he is only allowed to do what exactly God allows him to do. So, Goodwill and Christian, they go back and forth. I'm not going to read this whole section, uh, pretty much explaining what has happened, uh, the prior events. Uh, he talks about how Christian arrived here. Goodwill then says, um, We do not object to any entering here, notwithstanding all that they have done in the past, in no way are they cast out. And he's, his footnote here is very clearly alluding to John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is a very important verse in Bunyan's life. If you read Grace Abounding uh, towards the end, this is kind of like his final moment where he breaks out of spiritual depression because he realizes this verse that, you know, what does it mean to come to Christ? Just simply to come to him um, and that he's never going to cast anyone out, right? Um, So very, very important verse. Another reason why I think he's very clearly talking about salvation here. Um, in, in Pilgrim's Progress. I just wanted to quote that section from Grace Abounding. It's a very, very rich um, devotional thought, I think. This scripture also did now most sweetly visit my soul. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Oh, the comfort that I had from this word in no wise. As, one, as who should say, by no means, for nothing whatever he hath done. But Satan would greatly labor to pull this promise from me, telling me, that Christ did not mean me and such as I, but sinners of a lower rank that had not done as I had done. But I would answer him again, Satan, here is in these words no such exception. But him that comes, him, any him, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And this I well remember still, that of all the slights that Satan used to take the scripture from me, yet he never did so much as put this question. In other words, he's saying, you know, Satan is constantly saying, no, this promise isn't for you, and this is the main one that he was using. But do you come aright? Do you truly come to him? Is what he's saying. And I have thought the reason was because he thought I knew full well what coming aright was. Love this part. For I saw that to come aright was to come as I was, a vile and ungodly sinner, and to cast myself at the feet of mercy, condemning myself for sin. It's a really, really powerful um, section, Grace Abounding. Such a good gospel reminder. We don't call people to come to Christ, and you know, you need to clean up your act first. We call people to come to Christ. And he's the one who saves us. So Goodwill then, he instructs him to go on the way ahead. Namely, he points him to uh, the place of deliverance, the cross, where his burden is going to fall off. Anyone have any questions or any insights on the wicket gate? We're moving through this a little bit quick. 
Um, anyone they wanted to jump in? My question is this, is like, if goodwill stands for Christ, how come he couldn't take his burden off here? You know, like, why does he say you got to go to the cross? Um, it's Bunyan's story. He can do whatever he wants. Um, I think probably what he's trying to illustrate there is that Christian needs to have a greater and richer understanding of the gospel, which takes place when he sees the cross and then his burden just falls off. Um, so that's, that's probably what's going on. But anyways, just a question that I have that I don't have an answer exactly for. Okay, now we come to chapter eight. Chapter eight, the house of interpreter. The house of interpreter. We've got about 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's the answer. It's just when I was reading it, I was like, Christ is, you know, goodwill. It's like, why didn't it just come off there? Like he could have said, I, I'm just saying like in the story, he could have said, you know, hey, help me with this burden. And it's like Christ preaches to him. Hey, here's the sufficiency of my work. You know, it's just like, here's the cross right here. That's all I'm trying to say. But yes, you're exactly right. Biblically, that's often the case is that we need a richer understanding of the gospel. I mean, when we're struggling with doubts and despair and assurance of salvation, the answer is we, put, we point people to the sufficiency of Christ's work. We just keep going there, and I think that's what, that's what he's uh, picturing um, at the cross. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the end of the chapter was important, especially when Christians asking him, he, and the notes say he's afraid of losing his way on page 35, and he says, you know, are there, are there no turnings or windings or detours by which means of which a stranger can lose his way. And mm-hmm. Goodwill says, uh, yes, there are many. And then he says, but you must distinguish the right way from the, that which is wrong by observing that it is straight and narrow. Yeah. And the entry now into going into interpreters. Right. Yeah. How do we distinguish? How do we rightly divide? Right. Yeah. Rightly dividing the word. Yeah. Are you asking me how do we rightly no, divide? Pointing out. Okay. It seems like he's, he's moving in that direction. Right. Yes. Yep. Yep. Good stuff. All right. House of Interpreter. Uh, people are kind of divided here exactly what house of in, the, the House of Interpreter stands for. Um, I'm not entirely decided exactly. Um, basically, it's either, it's either referring to a godly pastor and the church um, and the work of the Holy Spirit or mainly just the Holy Spirit. I, I'm kind of divided. I don't know if it really matters a ton uh, exactly. Um, in part two... Christiana's journey, it seems to, he seems to make the point that the House of Interpreter refers to the pastor in a church, um, helping him to understand spiritual truths with the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I think Bunyan more specifically is referring to the pastor, pastors and the church when he gets to the palace beautiful. So it's kind of like, why would he do it twice? Um, again, it's his story, so he can do what he wants. Um, so I, I tend to think more of the emphasis here is the work of the Holy Spirit in helping Christian understand the truths of Scripture. Um, and certainly that includes a pastor in a church helping us understand. So um, just kind of context there. So Christian comes to the door, uh, house of interpreter. He knocks, seeking to speak with the master of the house. He says, Sir, I am a man who has come from the city of destruction and am on my way to Mount Zion. I was told by one good will at the wicked gate, the commencement of this narrow way, that if I called here, you would show me excellent things. That would be of help to me in my journey. Interpreter, by all means, come in, and I will certainly show you things that you will find beneficial. So he commanded his helper to light the candle and then invited Christian to follow him. Bunyan puts his footnote here that the candle refers to illumination, uh, which that is a work of the Holy Spirit um, in helping believers understand the truths of Scripture. On the last page, Horner, he thinks it's mainly talking about the Holy Spirit because he footnotes, you know, John 14 
15 and 16, which clearly talks about um, Christ when he leaves. He's going to send the par- a paraclete, another helper, who's going to guide you into all truths. He's going to refer to Christ. Uh, so it seems to be referring to the Holy Spirit here, helping us understand the truths of Scripture. He shows him seven excellent things, seven illustrations, seven pictures of the Christian life that we are supposed to learn from. Very valuable for all of us. We're not going to spend an equal amount of time on them uh, this morning. Uh, if you have one, you know, a particular insight on one that I glance over, please jump up. and Well, don't jump up. Or you can, if you want, I guess. But you can share that. Number one here. The first picture is that of a godly pastor. First picture is that of a godly pastor. He's portrayed as a serious man. Uh, the Bible is in his hand. He's looking up to heaven. The world is behind him. Truth is on his lips. Bunyan has very high praises for uh, pastor. Yes? I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm also wondering. I'm not finding where this is in the note sheet. Is this like oh, no. outside of the note? No, no, no. I didn't put it in. The, the seven, no. Yeah, no, I didn't put those in there. Sorry. I didn't do that. Yes, you can put it on the back if you want. Or if you have the book. Yeah. Yeah. So there's seven. First one here, he's talking about a pastor. Picture of a godly pastor. Um, he has very high praises for pastors, no doubt. Uh, pastor John Gifford was the Baptist pastor there in Bedford who helped him immensely, probably who he has in mind. I just wanted to read the last paragraph here. This is a quick one we're just going through. He says, Now I've showed you this picture first, because the man who it portrays is the only man who the Lord of the celestial city, God, has authorized to be your guide and all the difficult situations that you may encounter along the way. Therefore, pay attention to what I have showed you, and carefully weigh in your mind what you have seen, lest in your journey you meet with some that pretend to lead you along the right path, while in reality their way leads down to death. He's warning him to be aware of false teachers, like Mr. Worldly Wiseman, uh, and he's going to encounter various other false people um, that seek to lead him astray. Um, He makes very clear that pastors are the divinely instituted office that God has given to his church to guide us, to help us understand uh, the truths of Scripture, and to uh, warn also against false teachers. Um, One note of application here I just had in reading this um, is just another reminder of the importance of being in a local church with pastors who know you. Um, Typically speaking, pastors can't really help you if they don't know you. Um, So make yourself known to them. Uh, they want to help you. Um, I also wanted to mention this. Your pastors know you, not people on the internet. Um, and the reason why I say that is a lot of, I'm, I'm all for listening to good sermons and podcasts and all that stuff. But I think there actually can be a danger when you start to rely on that as the main source of your spiritual guidance and insight. Um, they don't know you, okay? Um, and oftentimes they're saying, provocative things because they want to get more views, okay? I'm not saying all of them have impure motives, but just keep that with a grain of salt. Um, Everything that you're listening to, um, it shouldn't be the primary place where you're getting spiritual wisdom and insight. It should be from your local church. Number two here, second illustration, we'll spend a little bit of time here, the distinction between the law and the gospel. I really like this one. Very helpful scene. Then Christian was taken by the hand and led into a very large uh, parlor or living room that was full of dust, having never been swept. Now, after he had observed this scene for a little while, interpreter called for a man to commence sweeping. As a result, the dust began to fly about so overwhelmingly that Christian was nearly choked to death. Interpreter immediately spoke to a gracious lady uh, standing nearby, bring some water here and sprinkle this room. The lady, having done this, 
The living room was then easily swept and cleansed. What is going on here? Well, we'll just keep reading. He actually explains it very well. This parlor is the heart of a man who has never been sanctified, someone who's never been regenerated or justified. Remember, sanctification can have uh, a positional emphasis in Scripture, right? Positionally declared holy uh, and also progressive. We typically talk about progressive, but um, what he's talking about here is someone who has never been saved, never been justified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original, you know, think Adam, uh, his original sin and inward corruptions that have thoroughly defiled the whole man. He who first began to sweep is the law, but the gracious lady who brought water and sprinkled the room is the gospel. So he starts to uh, uh, explain who these two people are and what they do. Now, while you saw, as soon as the man began to sweep, that the dust so swirled about the room that it became even more difficult to cleanse, and you were near choked to death, this is to show you that the law, instead of it effectively cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse, give greater strength to, and cause sin to flourish in the soul. And this result is in spite of the fact that the law both uncovers and condemns sin, for it does not have, very key word here, I think, the power. It does not have the power to subdue sin. It's another helpful illustration for Bunyan, um, explaining what the law does. He's referring to passages like Romans 5.20. It says that the law came to increase the trespass. Romans 7, uh, Paul talks about himself being held captive by the law. Galatians 3 says the law was added because of transgressions, to make transgression very, very clear. HD definition, 4K, or now we're on 8K, I think, even on TVs, right? Very, very clear. Bunyan even adds, adds here that the law arouses sin, okay? It gives greater strength to sin in the soul. Uh, the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, says that the power of sin is the law, okay? Romans 7 adds that the law actually arouses and empowers sin to work more effectually, we might say. And that is what Bunyan is alluding to here. Much like this broom and how it stirs up the dust and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, the law diagnoses the problem, but it doesn't provide the remedy. Um, I, I kind of thought an illustration here, you know, we're talking about a doctor, you know, you go in for surgery to see what's, you know, you got a lump in your lung or whatever. You know, it's kind of like they cut you open and they're like, yes, you have a lump. And then they just leave you there. Like they leave you open and the lump is still there. And they're like, yep, that's a lump. That is a lump, man. That's a big lump, right? If they just leave you open there, like you're eventually going to die because like you shouldn't have an open like <laughs> chest wound, you know, it's like that, that's what the law does. If we just keep preaching the law, it's like you're a doctor, you know, just sitting there with an open wound. You're even making it bigger. It's like it's bad. You don't want to do that. And the law is like that. It just continually arouses uh, sin. It gets actually even worse. So what do we do? Furthermore, as you saw the gracious lady sprinkle the room with water, at which it was very easily cleansed, this is to show you that when the gospel comes with its sweet and precious influences in dwelling the heart, then, just as you saw the lady settle the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the heart made clean through the faith of that soul. And consequently, that same soul is then made a suitable place for the king of glory to inhabit. So he's saying the gracious gospel of God, that is what vanquishes and subdues sin um, and dwelling sin in the human heart. And notice, what does he say? How does that work? You know, last line here, the heart is made clean through the faith, right? By faith, that is how we 
do this. We continually, I would argue, need to pour the gospel uh, of water in our hearts when sin is stirred up, and that's all by faith. Very helpful illustration for me. I hope that this uh, and also, you know, Mr. Worldly Wiseman and the Hill of Mount Sinai, hope these are pictures that stick in your mind and helping you think through, okay, how do I, you know, preach the law to myself? And then likewise, how do I bring the gospel to bear? Uh, Generally speaking, what we need um, ourselves and counseling other people is to bring the gospel to people, okay? Bring them to Christ and his grace uh, and not necessarily the dust. Uh, typically, if someone comes to you, it's because they've been stirring up the dust a lot already, right? And so we need to bring the, the water of God's grace. So very helpful illustration there. Number three, the virtue of patience contrasted with passion. That's this third picture that we see. It's a longer scene. I'm not going to go into it greatly. Uh, passion and patience are two kids, two children uh, that represent one who wants everything now. Who's that? Passion. Yep. I want everything now. And then the other who's willing to wait um, you know, for the good things to come, which God has prepared, and that's patience, right? And uh, very helpful illustration here. Implication is we need to be patient and trust in God uh, and his providence and when he brings his promises to bear. Uh, there are many blessings as Christians that we enjoy presently, right? But I would hope you'd agree with me that the vast majority of things we're looking forward to, right? Like, we enjoy some good stuff, but I'm very much anticipating the greatest stuff, okay? That's what we're looking forward to. We need to have patience. Number four, the grace of Christ conquers the assailed heart. This is another one of those uh, probably well-known passages uh, from Pilgrim's Progress. I find it very encouraging. This is the fourth scene here. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him to a place where there was a fire burning against a wall. In front of this fireplace was a man continually casting buckets of water on the fire in an effort to extinguish it. Nevertheless, the fire continued to burn higher and hotter. Christian replies, what does this mean? Interpreter, this fire is the work of grace that has been ignited in the heart. He who casts water upon it so as to extinguish this blaze is the devil. Even so, in that you see the fire burn higher and hotter, let me now show you the reason for this mystery. The fire is the work of grace, okay? Again, it's probably an allusion to grace abounding. There's a, a scene in there where Bunyan talks about, um, you know, Satan uh, attempting to pour cold water in, on his heart. Um, and he's talking about the fire of the gospel and stuff like that. Um, here is someone, he's describing someone here who's been truly saved, okay? A believer. Um, the work of grace has begun in their heart. Bunyan believes in the perseverance of the saints, There is no one that is saved and then loses their salvation, okay? I want to make that clear as we'll see this. This is important for the last or one of the last scenes here. Uh, But we see that in this life, from the scene here, God's work of grace is never perfected, right? It's a continual work that he's, you know, it's burning higher and hotter. God is continually doing the work of grace in our hearts that the devil is seeking to extinguish. I would add also, and I'm sure Bunny would agree with this, It's not just the devil. It's kind of that, you know, threefold adage, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Pretty sure he would agree with that, that uh, the world is going to seek to quell, you know, God's work of grace. Our own sinful flesh is certainly going to do that, and also the devil as well. Uh, But the fire is not extinguished. In fact, it burns higher and hotter. How can that be? He goes on here. So interpreter took Christian behind the wall and the fireplace. There, the pilgrim saw a man with a container in his hand from which he cast oil upon the fire, although secretly. What is going on here? Then said Christian, what does this mean? 
Hence, interpreter replied, this is Christ. Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. By this means, notwithstanding what the devil attempts to do, the souls of his people still prove to be gracious. And in that you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach you that it is hard for those who are tempted to understand how this work of grace is upheld in the soul. I wanted to talk about this question with, or talk about this section with a question. You do have this on your notes. Why do Christians persevere and not fall from the faith? The answer is this illustration, right? They do not fall because we are saved by the sovereign grace of God and we are kept by the sovereign grace of God, okay? Both of those truths are vital to hold. Um, we do not keep ourselves saved. Um, I think it was John MacArthur's like, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And it's so true. Um, that's why we sing songs, you know, like, he will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fa- fail, you know, Christ will hold me fast. All these things we just go through because we're trusting that God saves and keeps saved his people. Um, I think oftentimes we come to a place where we doubt our salvation because we don't see our heart or our soul as on fire, if you want to say, for Christ as it used to be, right? Our our love has waned. We're concerned about that. uh, And that's good. We should be called back uh, to Christ. Um, I, for one, would argue that the very fact that you're struggling with spiritual depression or assurance of salvation probably means that you are saved. Um, (laughs) People who aren't, don't have a problem with that. They just don't care. It's those who are testing themselves as 2 Corinthians 13 uh, verse 5, I think, talks about examining yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Well, when you do some self-examining, you're going to be like, man, there's some concerning stuff I'm seeing here, right? Well, that's good. Uh, Brings you back to to faith. Um, I also think it's good on that note for the Lord to humble us with moments like that, right? Where, you know, sometimes we think we're doing great and man, I'm just on fire for the Lord. And then it's like, you know, sin is revealed or something like that. And you're like, man, like, I was going astray. I, I just didn't see that at all. It humbles us. Um, there's another Owen quote that I, I, when I was reading through, I wrote this down because I wanted to talk about this. I thought this was so rich. Owen says this, Known holiness is apt to, de- to degenerate into self-righteousness. We have so much of the Pharisee in us by nature that it is sometimes well that our good is hid from us. I thought it was really helpful for me um, that oftentimes, you know, we, man, we're doing so well and all this stuff, and then we build up self-righteousness. We think we're Pharisees and stuff like that, that it's often good that God keeps the good that he's worked in us from us from seeing it. Uh, and often that's the case, is that there is a lot of good that God has done in us that we just don't clearly see. So, very true. I love that illustration there. Number five, the persevering valiant pilgrim. This is the one picture. It's very interesting. You come to the end, and Bunyan is like, you don't need to tell me what this one means. I know what this one means. And you're like, I don't know what it means. Um, I just think it's kind of funny. But uh, essentially, uh, this one, this picture, fifth picture here, it's a microcosm of the Pilgrim's Progress. It's the whole book in miniature, okay? So if you want the Cliff Notes version, you're like, I'm not going to read this book. Um, shame on you. But if you want the Cliff Notes version, just read this one, right? It's basically what it is. You've got this guy who sets out on this journey, and there's, you know, he's a knight, and he strikes down all these guys, and he gets to the Celestial City. And I think the reason why Bunyan's like, I know what this means, or Christian says, I know what this means, is because you're supposed to go like, oh, this is like the book I'm reading. Oh, okay. So that's the fifth one there. So sixth one here, okay? And we're at 945. I think we can get through this in five minutes. Is that okay? 
Let's just keep going. Okay. The despairing reprobate in the iron cage. We come to perhaps the most sobering, just, I'll say despairing, depressing moment in Pilgrim's Progress. People get here and then they stop. They're just like, I didn't like this book already and this is just too much for me. Um, and they stop here, okay? Uh, yeah, hopefully you've read this. Essentially what you have here is you've got someone in an iron cage that interpreter reveals to him who was once a professing believer and he says, I can't be saved now. I cannot come to Christ. There's absolutely no hope for me. I've been shut off from the promises of grace and it is very sobering, okay? Uh, there's a number of things I want to say um, and also talk about what Bunyan is not saying here. A few of these points are from Derek Thomas. He's a pastor who had a help, helpful section on this. And these are points you have on your notes. Number one, Bunyan is probably alluding to a real historical person. Okay? Scholars debate who it was. There was a Baptist pastor um, in Bunyan's day who apostatized from the faith. His name was uh, John Child. It's possible he's referring to that guy. More than likely, um, he's referring to a different guy that lived, um, I think, in the 16th century. Uh, Francis Spira uh, is his name. He uh, apostatized from the faith. And the reason why it's probably, I mean, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. He's probably referring to this guy because in his other writings, he actually names him five times. He talks about Francis Spira, um, and he's always talking about how he departed from the faith. Um, so it, it, it's likely that he's alluding to him. He was actually, he was a Roman Catholic Italian lawyer who came to Christ and then apostatized and went back to uh, Roman Catholicism. Just a very sad account of his life um, that was written later. So probably leading to a real historical person. Number two, Hebrews 12, 17 was a significant verse for Bunyan on this subject. This was one, this scene had always kind of troubled me. And I was just like, I don't know what's going on here until I read Grace Abounding. And I was like, okay, it makes so much sense now. In Grace Abounding, pretty much like the number one verse that caused Bunyan's spiritual depression and to doubt whether he was saved was this verse, okay? Hebrews 12, 17. He'll talk about, you know, the sweet promise of God's word, and man, I was so encouraged, and then I remembered this verse, and blah. And, and you know, I, oh man, God's word was so great, and then I remembered this verse. And it's just like, dude, goodness. Um, I'm gonna get to this point, but I actually think he's wrong in how he understands Hebrews 12, 17. Hebrews 12, 17 is talking about Esau rejecting his birthright. You're, you're probably familiar with this. And it says, for you know that afterward, referring to Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, face value, it could seem that this verse is saying Esau really wanted to repent and be saved and come to Christ. I do not think that's what the verse is saying at all, okay? I think the verse is grammatically, actually clearly and in context, saying that Esau tried to repent in the sense of inheriting the blessing. He was sad that he had abandoned the blessing uh, from his father, and he, he just wanted the blessing. It's not that he was sad about his sin and rejecting the blessing. He just wanted the blessing. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? I think that's very important. Um, one commentator said, it was his loss, not his profanity, that he mourned. He was sad of what he lost, not that he was sinful. Um, he wanted the promised uh, inheritance, not salvation from God. So I would just say, put simply, that this verse is not teaching that God doesn't allow people to repent even if they want to, okay? That's not what this verse is saying. It's not, there, there, there's no one who's like, man, I, I really wish I could come to Christ. I, I want to be saved, but I just can't. God, God's not going to allow it. And Hebrews 12, 17 teaches that. No, okay, that, that's, that's not true, okay? Yeah, there, there's all kinds of, you see in scripture, uh, 
remorse. I would go to 2 Corinthians 7, which talks about worldly grief versus godly grief. Worldly grief leads to death, whereas godly grief produces a repentance, which leads to joy without regret. So, I mean, you can be, I mean, there are people who are sorry for what, I mean, we, this is even true for us. Like, there are times where we're sorry for our sin because of what happened, the consequences of it. But we should be sad because of the consequences and that we wronged God, right? The difference between the two? It's a very key. Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, when you come to the Word of God just at face value, and, mm-hmm. you, and you read a verse like that, and yeah. you're thinking, well, I know the English language, and this is what the words in English are saying, uh-huh. and you have a perception of it, which Bunyan obviously had right. the opposite perception. Yeah. And then for me, I usually am like, wait, hold on, obviously I'm misunderstanding something, so I'll go and I'll look at like four different pastors, John and Matthew, usually yeah, the first, yeah. and then from that I'm like, okay, I was wrong. Yeah. 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 I think that's a long, a very good question for a long answer that I don't have a ton of time for. But I mean, the first thing I would say is just pray. I mean, constantly asking the Lord for illumination and strength to help me understand uh, the truths that are contained in Scripture. I mean, I love. I think it's Psalm one nineteen twenty four seventeen. You know, uh, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Um, and what he's saying there is not. Open my eyes to see all kinds of amazing things that aren't really there, but by your spirit, you just make me see amazing things. Like, it's like, no, help me to see what's on the pages of scripture. Um, so I would say with this one here, even in English, like, I mean, I haven't looked at all different versions, but like the ESV, I think is actually pretty clear. Like, especially in context, it's, it's not like Esau was just so, I mean, you even see this in scripture. I, is there any point in the Genesis narrative where Esau's like, I have sinned against God and I wish I could, I, off the top of my head, I don't think so. I mean, he's grieved at what he did, and he's mad about that. Not that he's rejected God's will for his life and stuff like that. So I can talk to you more about that. But, I mean, great question. Great, great question. Okay, I want to rush through these because we're running past time here. Just uh, four, four points. This is not teaching us that a true Christian can fall from grace and become a reprobate, right? Uh, the fire and water illustration of point number four, right, I think clearly indicates that. Those whom God saves, he justifies, uh, he regenerates, they're secure. That work of grace is never going to go away, okay? True Christians cannot fall from grace. Bunyan is not teaching that here, okay? Well, what is he saying? I think this, point four. Professing believers can and do fall away. And the Bible's full of examples like this. Um, uh, Liz, you already mentioned uh, Judas, right? You can think of Demas, right? I think Paul says, you know, who in love with this world has abandoned me, Okay. Um, who at first was, you know, doing a lot of great things. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they made a shipwreck of their faith, okay? So we do see this a lot. The parable of the soils in Matthew 13, right? They receive the word with joy, they fall away, it falls on, falls on um, you know, rocky soil or in the weeds, the birds come eat it, right? It's very clear. Verse five, there, or point five, there is a condition from which it is impossible to repent. I'm not going to read this here, but uh, Hebrews 6, which is what Bunyan footnotes here, Uh, Hebrews 6 is very clear on this. Um, He says that there are people who have fallen away from faith and it's impossible to restore them, okay? I mean, you just read Hebrews 6 and I'm not making this stuff up. It's very clearly there. They've experienced all these things. There is a place where it is impossible to repent. And now you're like, well, 
what, what do I do with this? Point six here. Can a person be unable to repent and know that they are lost for all eternity? It's a difficult question to think about here. Um, <laughs> I think no, actually. But I don't think there actually is a point where someone can know that it is impossible for me to repent, okay? Uh, generally speaking, Thomas has a really good quote here. Um, and this kind of deals with the unforgivable sin and stuff like that. I'm not going to get into that, but he wrote this. Reformed preachers down through the ages have tended to say that those who are concerned that they may have committed the unpardonable sin, you know, I've, I'm, I'm not able to repent, those that are concerned that they've done that are in fact more than likely those that have not committed the unpardonable sin because those who have committed the unpardonable sin are not troubled by it, okay? I think that's true, and that's a good point, okay? Um, you know, if, if you come to, and this is kind of my last point, if you come to someone who's like this, you know, this despairing person in the iron cage, you know, I, I've sinned, I've fallen from grace, I cannot, I mean, I just, what I've done is too evil, I cannot come to Christ. How would we respond to that person? And I hope the answer is you'd say something like this. Hey, the fact that you're troubled like this is actually a good sign, okay? This is, this is a very sad condition, but it's good um, that you're here. Here's what I know from Scripture. God's Word says that all who come to Christ, He will in no wise, as in Bunyan's words, I will in no wise cast out, okay? So you need to come to Christ, okay? If you truly come to Him in faith, He will not cast you out. Bring your doubts, your worries, your despair to Christ and trust in Him, right? Isn't that what we'd say? Like, if you come to someone, I, I just think it's pretty simple. What is Bunyan doing then with the despairing reprobate in the iron cage? I think he's just drawing us to the warning passages of Hebrews, right? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Well, who are the people who heed the warning passages? Believers, right? Because you and I are like, man, I don't want to do this. I I don't want to fall away. Lord, please keep me near the cross, right? Um, So I think that is what he's trying to do. He, He gives us a sobering picture of someone who has departed from the faith that we would be warned to not do that. And that's what the warning passages of Hebrews do. So I have that last question there. That's for you guys to consider. How should we respond? We don't have time to talk about it. How should we respond to both the picture of Christ's work in the heart and the despairing reprobate? I just want to say, exercise faith in Christ. Lord, please help me, right? You know, we, we think about both of these pictures um, with fear and trembling, right? Christ, please help me, you know. I would just say this, like, stop worrying so much. It's like, am I, am I elect or, or not? I just don't know, right? And just cling to Christ and plead that he would keep you there, that he would continue uh, to do his work on your heart, okay? The final illustration there is number seven, the warning of the final day of judgment. It's pretty clearly what he's talking about there, the final day of judgment. Um, yeah, I'm not going to talk about that one. Okay, next week, chapter nine. Sorry, I know I went, we went a little late. I wanted to get through this. Um, if you have questions or anything was unclear, let me know. And we'll circle back to this. We'll finally come to the cross and the empty tomb where Christian loses his burden. You're dismissed. Thank you, Kelly. Mm-hmm.